Modern Architecture, a very short introduction by Adam Shah. Somewhere between 1910 and 1970, architecture changed. Now that modern architecture is familiar, and we've seen how it became both celebrated and vilified, it is hard to imagine how novel it once seemed. Expensive Western buildings became transformed from ornamental fancies which referred to the classical and medieval pasts, into strikingly plain reflections of novel materials, technologies and ideas. It's equally hard to remember how modern architecture promised transformation, seemingly poised to turn dirty, overcrowded cities, characterised by packed slums and satanic mills, into spacious realms of generous housing and clean, mechanised production, set in Parkland. At certain times and in certain cultures, modern architecture stood for the liberation of the future from the past. The phrase modern architecture describes a spectrum of building and ideas. From Shakespeare's times until the 19th century, modern in English meant up to date. The idea of progress became important in the 19th century and that made the modern progressive part of an apparently predestined course for an impoverished past to a still inadequate present towards an idealised future. More recently, however, the term modern largely came to describe a specific time in the 20th century where many people, especially in the West, seemed persuaded that a better future was on its way. For some historians, modern architecture refers primarily to a stark white building from the 1920s and 30s. Crisp, hovering edifices which, so the story goes, reflected honestly their internal functions on the outside, illustrating how they were put together, highlighting the shock of the new. For others, the idea of a modern architectural future had a long history. It dated back to the Paris World's Fair of 1889 or John Ruskin's 1849 excitations about how medieval Gothic cathedrals express structure honestly in stone. Just as it's possible to argue about the beginnings of modern architecture, its demise has been much debated. For various commentators, modern architecture is over. It was supplanted by postmodernism, 1980s and 1990s, when architects became less interested in the expression of function and returned to historical motifs like the 1991 extension to London's National Gallery, designed by Venturi, Scott Brown and Associates, or striking shape-making of various kinds, like the sinuous Guggenheim Museum, Bilbao, 1997, designed by Franco Geary's studio. For others, modern architecture, as the expression of contemporary building technologies, as the idea of making construction led legible and transparent remains current, no matter that other disciplines insist on the demise of modernity in their fields. I'll take a long and broad view of modern architecture here, examining what Harold Rosenberg called the tradition of the new, arguing that it didn't just emerge fully formed in the 1910s and the 1920s, or as the consequence of the 19th century pioneers, but was instead the product of two centuries of industrialisation and the global spread of industrial culture. 
I set out neither to promote nor condemn modern architecture. Rather, my aim is to illustrate how it was pro produced out of, and reflected, the cultures that constructed it. I explored it in all its strangeness and thoughtfulness, as designed by some curious, obsessive characters. The organisation of this book. Certain famous modern architects were skilled self-publicists. Memorable aphorisms like Ludwig Meyer's and Van der Rohe's Less is More and Le Corbusier's The House is a Machine for Living extended the lexicon for popular quotation. Less widely known but chortled at by generations of architecture students is Lewis Kahn's 1971 com Conversation with a Brick. If you think of brick, you say to brick, what do you want, brick? And brick says to you, I like an arch. And if you say to brick, look, arches are expensive and I can use a concrete lintel over you. What do you think of that, brick? Brick says, I like an arch. This image of architect in communication with the brick illustrates a point which preoccupied modern architects that different buildings' materials imply their own inherent logics, how particular materials go together. Kahn suggested make certain combinations of structure, wall and building assembly seem inevitable. Brick wants to make arches, timber wants to make lattices of beams and posts, steel wants to make frames, reinforced concrete wants to make frames too, and also thin planes and big spans. You can persuade those materials to behave otherwise, but why? Kahn implied, as a thoughtful modern architect, would you do that? This was not new. In 1863, Parisian architect Eugène Emmanuel, Violet de Luc, wrote that any chance of material must bring about a change of forms. The contemporaneous German writer Gottfried Semper argued that brick, wood and iron should be treated according to their statical laws. Both responded to Ruskin's idea about honesty to materials and their honest visual expression of the uses of a building. Their earnest morality persisted into the modern architecture and the idea that materials have their own inherent logics explained how I've organised this book. Historians often gave architects more credit than they deserved for shaping modern architecture. Modern architects imaginations were hugely extended by material innovations. Developments in steel and reinforced concrete radically altered possibilities for shaping buildings, as did new systems for electric lighting and handling air. These technical innovations, in turn, emerged from new cultures of industrial production. Thus, my story is organised around the technical innovations that opened up the cultural and intellectual opportunities for modern architecture to happen. This isn't to say that architects were involved in the invention of new technologies. Most weren't, and men many disapproved at first. But as Adrian Forty had argued, architects' special ability was to conjure up images for new technologies that made them seem striking and appealing. Architects didn't create steel and reinforce concrete, or fluorescent tubes and air conditioning, but they appreciated how these technologies could make the world look and feel different and they designed knowingly in relation to imagery from other spheres like modern art and industrial design. 
The British modern architect Wells Coates wrote in 1931 that there was a choice between the use of new materials as prisoners, the slaves of old habits, old social prejudices, old visual prejudices, or as the means to new forms, new habits of life, a new vision. My story thus explores the architectural consequences of iron and steel, reinforced concrete, brick, air conditioning and electric light. To illustrate how modern architecture produced powerful cultural images expressing the potential of the future. These new technologies were not adopted by the architects in a linear sequence, but to some extent in parallel. So each chapter here, while organised broadly in chronological order, shifts back in time to begin before the previous one ends. Some definitions. I define modernity here as the condition of living in an industrialised society. Industrialised societies are those shaped by modern science and consumer technologies, by mass production, mass markets, mass consumption, mass education and mass media, by novelty and fashion and by accelerating globalisation fuelled by the power of global finance. Underpinning industrialised societies was an idea that perpetual scientific progress operated hand in hand with economic growth and also, sometimes, multi-party democracy. Alongside the industry, work and changing patterns of domestic life, the category of modernity encompassed ideas from art, literature, film, theatre, media, music, philosophy and architecture. Cultural endeavours reflecting modern societies and shaping them through the reflections they offered. Modern technology and the cultures it produced seemed poised to liberate people from rigid constraints, traditionally imposed by their gender, class or ethnicity. But the same progress could seem alienating, disrupting traditional communities and ways of life. Modernity thus mixed optimism about the social opportunities of technology with deep unease about its consequences. The peak of modernity occurred between the late 19th and mid 20th centuries in the West. Indeed, modernity extended beyond the West in different places at different times, and sometimes associated with colonialisation in the 19th and 20th century, and sometimes with post-colonial societies. More recently, faith in perpetual progress was shaken. Science and technology appeared fallible, Power structures linking the funding of science and political parties with industry, finance and military endeavours became more apparent, ended during the latter part of the 20th century, or at least became much more complicated. The term postmodern was coined to describe what followed. I define modern architecture here as architecture produced out of the condition of modernity. In particular, it's architecture that contributed to modernity because the images of its buildings seem to express what modernity stood for. Modern architecture's champions referred to the modern movement, associating it with radical movements in art. The term also implied connections with radical political movements that its characters occasionally hooked up with. In Russia and Italy in the 1910s, and Germany and France in the 1920s. Only when tidied up by sympathetic historians in retrospect, however, 
did it look like a coherent movement. There were always multiple ar modern architectures and the term meant different things to different people at ta different times. In his 1896 book, Modern Architecture, architect Otto Wagner associated the idea with the rational and honest expression of materials, structure and function, and with the purging of unnecessary decoration, themes familiar as late as the 1970s. In the 1910s, however, quite different architectures of Art Nouveau characterised by swirling floral motifs would also have been called modern, alongside the expressionist crystalline shapes of Bruno Tartt's crystal chain group. By the late 1930s, however, these counted as modern less frequently. At that time, modern architecture became more tightly defined around buildings invoking glamorous technologies of the age. Cars, ocean liners and aeroplanes. This was the so-called international style, ma matching white planes with flat roofs, open plans, extensive glazing, horizontal windows and blocks you could see below or through. By the late 1950s, multiple modern architectures proliferated again, reconsidering what then became seen as the early modern architecture of the 1930s. Certain architects at that time hoped to make modern architecture more humane, dramatic, monumental or systematically scientific. Despite these differences, the idea of a single modern movement persisted. It sounded glamorous and sold textbooks. Modern architecture was also defined by how architects designed it. There are three primary kinds of scaled architectural drawing. The elevation, depicting a facade. The, facec the section, a vertical cut from roof to foundations, showing floors stacked up. And the plan, a horizontal cut showing the layout of rooms on a floor, where architects previously agonised over elevations often adapting plans and sections around decisions made by the facades. Modern architects prioritised the plan. They claimed that the layout of rooms, the best functional arrangement for a house, library or office should come first, and that the elevations should be secondary. The most famous modern architect, Le Corboisier, wrote that the plan is the generator. Louis Sullivan's catchy aphorism for <laughs> form ever follows function was a slogan for this way of working. In the writings of Adolf Luz, it became elevated to a moral imperative. By the 1930s, most modern architects believed there was something truthful about designs prioritising function and something dishonest about designs emphasising a building's artistic decoration. Despite the rhetoric, however, modern architects remain deeply concerned with the imagery of their buildings. Indeed, numerous modern buildings can be understood as architectural images dedicated to undermining the idea of architectural imagery. From the 1930s, modern architecture increasingly became called modernism, making it sound like a cause. The term allowed historians to characterise modern architecture as a style like other architectural styles. Neoclassicism or Gothic Revivalism, for example.
It also helped them link it to other modernisms in art and literature that similarly responded to technologies, cultures, industrialization and globalization. This appealed to critics who made reputations out of classifying trends, but many modern architects thought thought they were insulating isolating honest timeless ways to design, not indulging in something as fleeting as style, and vigorously rejected the idea. Modernism appears with and without a capital M. Some advocates of modern architecture used the capital letter to sort out buildings they felt were special symbols of movement from buildings that they were merely that were merely new. Others used it to elevate modernism to the status of other nouns capitalized in English, like church or God. You won't see modern or modernism written with a capital M again here, and I'll use modernism sparingly. I don't want to make modern architecture seem more important than that of other architectures. Nor do I find obsessing about which famous buildings fit into which stylistic categories particularly fruitful. When studying architecture, it seems more interesting to think instead about buildings themselves, how they work, what they do and what they say. Having reflected on the modern in modern architecture, it's worth pausing on architecture. Nicholas Fesner, the prominent modern historian, famously made a distinction between architecture and building. A bicycle shed is a building, he wrote, whereas Lincoln Cathedral is a work of architecture. Distinctions like this are widespread but obstructive. All buildings, bicycle shed or cathedral, banal office building or obsessively detailed museum, offer insights into the values of the people and cultures which pr produce them, illustrating the ideas informing their design, construction and use. All are valid objects of scholarly attention. I've included big sheds and bridges in this book, alongside churches and high-rise towers, because they all yielded important architectural images of modernity. If anything distinguishes the buildings I've included here from others, it's that they became famous because they provided inspiring or troubling enough for people to have projected ideas about modernity onto them. Most histories of modern architecture bring the story up to date, but because I contend that modernity transformed into something else, my story closes in the 1970s, accepting that architecture transformed with it. This end point coincides with the time when buildings regulations introduced in the West made the idea of truth to materials harder to achieve at the level of architectural detail. While ideas from modern architecture remain doggedly persistent and the numerous architects still practice as paid up modernists, ours is now the architecture of another time which will attract its own histories in due course. Histories of the future. Modern architecture owed as much to its storytellers as its buildings. Le Corboisier's 1923 book, Towards a New Architecture, which became admired in the Anglosphere in the 1930s, tried to establish moral and visual principles for modern architecture. Meanwhile, certain historians rewrote architectural history 
to make modernism its logical consequence, including Hitchcock and Johnson, whose 1932 term international style I've already mentioned, and Fesner, whose pioneers of modern design, 1936, sought to persuade sceptics inclined towards the past that modern architecture actually emerged from a long history. Siegfried Gideon illustrated in 1941 how architecture could be understood in terms of time and space, and in the 1960s, Peter Rayner Barnham, historian of the immediate future, extended the category of architecture to include all sorts of industrial structures, and technologies and gadgets. Robert Venturi's Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture, 1966, reminded readers that history always infused modern architecture and anticipated the postmodernism that followed. It's a curious quirk that modern architecture, whose most extreme forms rejected the past, was so extensively consolidated by its historians. Architectural histories have strange conventions. Buildings are usually designed in studios full of architects and technicians, with clients, builders, engineers and regulations that help to shape them. Nevertheless, historians mostly attribute famous buildings to a single architect, usually male, white and western, like most of the historians themselves even if that individual hardly spent any time on the project. I'll use this pervasive convention here, albeit guardedly, with this reminder not to forget who it conceals. Another convention, as old as the book The Lives of the Artist by the architect Giorgio Vasari, 1550, depicts famous architects as visionary geniuses working against the odds. This idea persists and certain mo modern architects became elevated into superheroes who could do no wrong. I'll highlight one such anointed superhero in each chapter, recalling the celebrity worship that still pervades architectural culture. Few architectural history books stray from sites of financial and cultural power. Most discuss buildings that were novel when they were constructed, becoming models for others that followed built in places with the wealth necessary to make them, the cultural sensibilities that prized their novelty, and celebrated by local critics, influential enough to get them widely noticed. Architectural historians now worry about this, about, repeated re about repeatedly retelling dominant but partisan stories. To compensate, they've worked to make their histories more diverse and inclusive to illustrate who has the power to build what, when, where, how, and for whom. A very short book like this inevitably has to admit far more than it includes, so I've focused here on a small selection of buildings that also account for bigger cultural ideas. I emphasise what modern architecture was like, why it was like that, and how it was imagined, more than the global patterns of where and when. This approach helps me to argue that buildings themselves should be the primary source of architectural research, that every building, cathedral or bicycle shed, glamorous gallery or your own home, contains architectural, cultural, technical and historical knowledge. It also emphasises the buildings that you need to know, 
to talk knowledgeably with others who think they already know about modern architecture. Its consequence, however, is to reinforce the Euro-American mainstream, omitting buildings and characters from other contexts. I've tried to mitigate this by including some less familiar projects and introducing some familiar examples in less familiar ways. Ultimately, though, I hope this book will encourage you to read further, to go beyond buildings designed largely by white Western male men in the most powerful countries in the world to explore less chartered but equally important modern architectures.